Hello everyone. Hope you're all hanging in there. I know I'm frazzled with the state of not knowing the outcome of our current elections yet as I record this episode. But let's keep calm and hope we know more details soon. Today is Wednesday, November 11th, 2020. My name is Sanal Patel and this is the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. Do you want more information on how to use hospice modifiers correctly? Well, I get into it in this episode. Welcome to my 10th episode. This episode highlights the hefty OIG work plan for October 2020. I also deliver my trusty tips on how to use hospice modifiers correctly, and I share a profound note from South Africa's Nelson Mandela. If you've checked me out on LinkedIn, you know I'm all about compliance and protecting our physicians and valued healthcare professionals when it comes to the business of medicine. I hope this week with me brings you enough to take back to your organizations to want to dive in deeper, to use my tips and best practices to ensure success. I hope this podcast will help you boost the quality of documentation capture and improve coding accuracy as you help your providers paint the medical picture. If you like what you're hearing, go ahead and hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss an episode. Please write in a review and rating on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to my podcast. I'd really love your support. Now, a quick disclaimer. Before I get started on the episode, this podcast episode and Nexon Pruitt podcast series do not constitute legal advice, but I am fortunate to work with the sound healthcare attorneys at Nexon Pruitt. And... As their consultant, I have over 10 years of experience in front office, back-end, coding, and billing for multi-specialty physicians, compliance, and auditing for both E&M and surgical operative reports. Again, the opinions and insights throughout are mine alone, and they in no means constitute legal advice. So, let's get into newsworthy. I wanted to go over the 16 new October 2020 updates made to the OIG work plan. Now, telehealth services have been booming during this pandemic of COVID-19 to benefit our patients, to ensure they continue receiving continuum of care, but CMS and the OIG are ripe for now reviewing telehealth services and looking closely at program integrity risks and so much more. So let's start with the first update. It is the audit of HRSA's controls over Medicare providers' compliance with attestation, submitted revenue information, and quarterly use of funds reporting requirements related to the $50 billion general distribution of the Provider Relief Fund, the PRF. So the details include there's a combined $175 billion worth of funding from the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, the CARES Act, as well as the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, and the Health Care Enhancement Act. They comprise the PRF, which provides relief funds to hospitals and other healthcare providers for healthcare related expenses or lost revenue attributable to the COVID 19 pandemic, as well as to ensure that uninsured Americans get testing and treatment for COVID 19. HHS allowed an allocated $50 billion for the general, dest- 
for the, excuse me, for the general distribution made to Medicare providers. Now, providers that receive those PRF funds are subject to certain requirements for the attestation, submission of revenue information, and reporting of quarterly use of funds to HHS. A provider that received a PRF payment and retained it for at least 90 days without contacting HHS regarding that payment is deemed to have accepted its terms and conditions. Further, a provider must submit general revenue data after receiving or when applying to receive a payment. And finally, according to the CARES Act, Division B, Title V, Section 15011B2, no later than 10 days after the end of each calendar quarter, a provider that received more than $150,000 in total funds for the coronavirus response and related activities shall submit a report to HHS regarding the use of those funds. Also, as part of the OIG's oversight of the $50 billion general distribution of the PRF, the OIG will provide a snapshot of the effectiveness of the HRSA's controls over Medicare providers' compliance with the attestation, submitted revenue information, and quarterly use of funds reporting requirements. Specifically, the OIG will review HRSA's internal controls and assess its policies and their procedures related to these areas. We should be expecting a final report in fiscal year 2021. Moving on to the second update in the OIG work plan for October 2020. It's titled Medicare Telehealth Services During the COVID-19 Pandemic, Program Integrity Risks. So in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, CMS implemented a number of waivers and flexibilities that allowed our Medicare beneficiaries to access a wider range of telehealth services without having to travel to a healthcare facility. Their review will be based on Medicare Parts B and C data, and it will identify program integrity risks associated with the Medicare telehealth services during the pandemic. They also want to analyze providers' billing patterns for telehealth services. They want to describe the key characteristics of providers that may pose a program integrity risk to the Medicare program. So let's go back in time and remember that during the months of March and April, there was a widespread confusion for everyone involved and um, the guidance that CMS was issuing almost on a daily basis was changing. So they want to go back and take a look at the various types of healthcare providers that were trying to perform continuum of care services and see if things were done correctly um, and reporting those telehealth services the way they wanted at the time. So the final report is expected in fiscal year 2021. Let's move on to the, the third update in the OIG audit. Um, plans for October 2020. So the work plan includes the audit of our national domestic violence hotline and shelter in place orders during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
the COVID-19 pandemic poses special challenges for victims of domestic violence. Because of economic and other uncertainties surrounding the pandemic and the shelter-in-place orders in effect for most states, abusers may exert further power and control over their partners. Victims in these states are more socially isolated and have fewer opportunities to connect with others who may be able to help them. Isolated victims may also be less likely to use the crisis hotlines because their abusers are close by and victims may face repercussions if they reach out for help. For fiscal year 2020, the Administration for Children and Families allocated $12 million for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Heretofore, I'm gonna call it the hotline. The hotline operates a 24-hour national toll-free and confidential telephone hotline for victims of domestic violence. It maintains a comprehensive resource database on services for these victims and is the only 24-7 center in the nation that has access to service providers and shelters across the U.S. The Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Securities Act, that's our CARES Act, provided additional funding of $2 million for the hotline, including hotline services provided remotely. So the OIG's objectives here are to include identification of number one, trends with the hotline data that occurred during the nationwide shelter-in-place orders. Number two, whether the hotline faced challenges that occurred during the state's shelter-in-place orders and actions it has since taken to address these challenges while continuing to support those affected by domestic violence. The final report is expected again in fiscal year 2021. The fourth update in the OIG work plan for October 2020 is for our Indian Health Service use of critical care response teams to support healthcare facilities during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Indian Health Services, the IHS, is charged with providing comprehensive health care for approximately 2.6 million of our American Indians and Alaska Natives. It is critical to ensure safe and accessible health care for them during the COVID-19 pandemic. Prior and previous OIG work found that IHS facilities often lacked sufficient clinical and other staff members. They also identified numerous problems caused by staffing, by staffing shortages, including limited patient access to specialists, as well as problems with the use of contracted staff members. The COVID-19 pandemic may exacerbate staffing shortages as IHS and tribal hospitals continue to see more COVID-19 patients. As a response, IHS contracted additional staff by performing a critical care response team pilot program, which is designed to provide urgent medical care for COVID-19 patients in facilities with insufficient staffing. The teams are also charged with preparing and training frontline healthcare staff on evidence-based and best practices, supporting clinical decision-making, and providing consultations and advice on hospital operations, as well as how to manage critically ill patients. Now, as of September 29th of 2020, IHS has deployed five teams to provide services at six IHS-operated facilities 
as well as three tribally operated facilities, and they've planned to make the program a longer term part of the IHS operations. Doing this could help remedy long-standing staffing shortages at IHS facilities. However, problems identified in the previous and prior OIG work indicate that IHS may have difficulty managing this contracted resource and integrating the teams into facility practices. OIG's review will use interviews with IHS and contracted staff as well as document reviews to assess how IHS is using the critical care response teams, including development, management, and oversight of those teams, as well as IHS's selection criteria for determining which facilities would receive deployments. This final report is also expected in fiscal year 2021. Now, the fifth update for the OIG work plan for October 2020 is for ineligible providers in our Medicare Parts C and Part D. So CMS contracts with our Medicare Advantage plans, that's Part C, as well as private prescription drug plans, also called Part D, and they offer Part C and Part D managed care benefits to eligible beneficiaries. Federal law prohibits Medicare payments for services provided or prescriptions written by individuals or entities who are excluded from federal healthcare programs. They're, they're called our excluded providers when the sponsor knows or has a reason to know of the exclusion. Federal regulations also prohibit Medicare payments to ineligible providers whose billing privileges have been deactivated, denied, or revoked. The OIG wants to conduct this report for a nationwide audit of the Medicare Parts C and Parts D programs for calendar years 2018 and 2019 to identify ineligible providers that had been excluded, precluded, or deactivated as Medicare providers, but moved on and provided services through Parts C and Part D as sponsors. Their audit requirements on preventing ineligible providers from rendering services to Medicare beneficiaries is the scope of this audit. Fiscal year 2021 is when we can expect a final report. The sixth update, nationwide review of the administration and oversight of physician administered drugs. States are required to collect rebates on covered outpatient drugs administered by physicians in order to be eligible for federal matching funds. Previous OIG work identified significant concerns with states' efforts in obtaining rebates for these physician-administered drugs. The OIG report will summarize the results and issues identified in these audits and they will also examine CMS's policies and procedures to ensure the states appropriately collect Medicaid rebates on physician-administered drugs. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2021. The seventh update is for the joint work with state agencies. To strengthen program integrity and efficiently use audit resources, the OIG wants to enhance their efforts to provide broader oversight of the Medicaid program by partnering with state auditors, state comptrollers, and state inspectors general. Federal-state partnerships will provide effective methods that address 
improper payments in fee-for-service programs such as home health, hospice, and durable medical equipment, and in managed care. OIG will partner with states to number one, address known vulnerabilities that it has identified in both Medicare and Medicaid to curb such vulnerabilities in Medicaid nationwide, as well as number two, to identify new areas that put the integrity of the Medicaid program at risk. This final report is expected in fiscal year 2021. The eighth update is for the mandatory review of HHS agencies' annual accounting of National Drug Control Program funds. The Office of National Drug Control Policy Circular Accounting of Drug Control Funding and Performance Summary requires agencies expending funds on National Drug Control Program activities to submit an accounting of the expenditure of such funds made during the previous fiscal years. The policy also requires that an agency submit with its annual accounting an authentication provided by the agency's OIG that expresses a conclusion on the reliability of the agency's assertions. The circular states that if an agency's prior year drug-related obligations were less than $50 million, the agency would not be subject to these authentication requirements. The OIG will review how HHS agencies complied with this circular, and they will submit the authentication with respect to the HHS agency's annual accounting, beginning with fiscal year 2020, once every three years. The expected issue date for the final report is fiscal year 2021. Now, the ninth update for the OIG work plan for October 2020 is for the risk assessment of Puerto Rico Medicaid program. The Puerto Rico Medicaid program is a 100% managed care program that provides health services to more than 1 million beneficiaries. In December 2019, Congress provided Puerto Rico additional funding under the Further Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2020. And it also contains anti-corruption measures, which include requirements for OIG to develop and submit to Congress a report identifying payments made under Puerto Rico's Medicaid program to manage care organizations that are at high risk for waste, fraud, or abuse, and they plan for auditing such payments. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2021. The tenth update is for the audit of state efforts to locate eligible children missing from foster care. So Title IV-E of the Social Security Act established the federal foster care program, which helps states provide safe and stable out-of-home care for children who meet certain eligibility requirements until they are safely returned home, placed permanently with adoptive families, or placed in other planned arrangements. The OIG will examine whether states' reporting of their missing foster children is in accordance with federal and state requirements. They will conduct a survey to determine the approaches that state agencies have adopted pertaining to missing Title IV-E foster children for the periods of July 1st, 2019 through September 30th, 2020. 
Their objective is to determine whether selected state agencies are in compliance with federal and state regulations pertaining to reporting and locating missing Title IV foster children to ensure the safe return of each child. They will also analyze historical data concerning missing foster children to determine whether there is a correlation between missing Title IV-E foster children and state agencies' policies and procedures. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2021. Now, the 11th update is for the OIG oversight of state Medicaid fraud control units, the MFUKUs. The 50 state MFUKUs located in 49 states and the District of Columbia investigate and prosecute Medicaid provider fraud, as well as complaints of patient abuse or neglect in Medicaid-funded facilities and board and care facilities. OIG provides oversight for the MFUKU and administers a federal grant award that provides 75% of each MFUKU's funding. As part of OIG's oversight, we provide them with guidance. This is the OIG. The OIG provides guidance to the Mafukus. They assess their adherence to federal regulations, policy, and performance standards. They also collect and analyze performance data. The OIG will also provide technical assistance and training and will identify effective practices in Mafuku management and operations. The OIG will perform on-site reviews of a sample of Mufukus. Fiscal year 2021 is when we can all expect the final report. The 12th update is for the comparison of average sales prices and average manufacturer prices. When Congress established average sales prices, the ASP, as the basis for Medicare Part B drug reimbursement, it also provided a mechanism for monitoring market prices and limiting potentially excessive Medicare payment amounts. The Social Security Act mandates that the OIG compare ASPs with average manufacturer prices, AMPs. If the OIG finds that the ASP for a drug exceeds the AMP by 5% in the two previous quarters or three of the previous four quarters, the Secretary of Health and Human Services may substitute the reimbursement amount with a lower calculated rate. These quarterly memos summarize the results of OIG's comparison analysis based on ASP and AMP data. The memo specifically reports the number of drugs the OIG identified that met the criteria for substitution of a lower reimbursement amount. This report is also expected in fiscal year 2021. The 13th update in the OIG work plan for October 2020 is for the public health actions affecting unaccompanied children, coordination between the CDC and the Office of Refugee Resettlement. The Unaccompanied Alien Children, the UAC program, operated by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, the ORR, provides care and placement for children without lawful immigration status who do not have a parent or a guardian in the U.S. available to take custody. In March of 2020, the CDC issued a public health order intended to reduce the spread of COVID-19. Pursuant to the CDC order, 
the Department of Homeland Security had substantially reduced the number of children referred to the UAC program and instead expelled such children immediately or detained them in hotels until they were repatriated. Effective coordination between CDC and ORR is critical to ensure that HHS fulfills its responsibilities towards vulnerable children. The OIG will assess the extent to which the CDC had coordinated with ORR to ensure that the UAC program had sufficient and timely information for effective capacity planning. They will also assess the CDC's actions to determine and carry out its responsibilities towards children detained pursuant to the public health order and the extent to which the CDC had consulted with ORR on issues pertaining to children's welfare. The expected issue date for this report is fiscal year 2021. Now, the 14th update for the OIG work plan in October 2020 is for separated children placed in the Office of Refugee Resettlement Care. Update Refugee Resettlement in the ORR provides care and placement for children without lawful immigration status who do not have a parent or guardian in the U.S. available to take custody. The UAC program serves children who arrive in the U.S. unaccompanied, as well as children who are separated from their parents or their legal guardians by immigration authorities after entering the country, otherwise known as separated children. Now, under a June 26, 2018 federal court order, families entering the U.S. without authorization cannot be separated at the border by immigration authorities unless the parent meets the criteria, such as having a criminal history. The OIG will determine the total number of separated children referred to ORR after June 26 of 2018. They will also determine key characteristics of this population, identify the reasons for their separation, and compare their outcomes to the UAC program child population overall. This report is also expected in fiscal year 2021. Now, the 15th update to the OIG work plan for October 2020 is for the Audit of Health Resources and Services and Services Administration's COVID-19 Uninsured Program. To address the COVID-19 pandemic, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the FFCRA, and the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, together approved $2 billion to reimburse providers for costs associated with conducting COVID-19 testing and testing-related items and services for the uninsured. Additionally, a portion of the $175 billion appropriated to the Provider Relief Fund by the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, our CARES Act, and PPP will be issued for treating uninsured individuals with a confirmed COVID-19 diagnosis. HHS, through the HRSA, launched the COVID-19 Uninsured Program Portal, a single electronic claims processing system for healthcare providers for submitting claims for reimbursements for diagnostic testing and treating uninsured individuals. 
The OIG will determine whether claims for COVID-19 diagnostic testing and treatment services reimbursed by HHS through HRSA's COVID-19 uninsured program complied with federal requirements. The final report is expected in fiscal year 2021. And lastly, the 16th update to the October 2020 OIG work plan is for compliance with federal requirements for other transaction agreements at the NIH's National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Other transaction agreements, or OTAs, are special federal funding instruments often used to advance high-impact, cutting-edge research programs in engagements with traditional and non-traditional research partners. OTAs are subject to federal fiscal law. However, OTAs are not subject to other laws, rules, or regulations specific to traditional federal grants and contracts. Only agencies that receive specific statutory authority may use OTAs. The NIH's National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute has received such authority between fiscal years 2017 and 2019 and has issued OTAs valued at over $80 million. The OIG will audit the National Heart Institute's processes for awarding and administering OTAs and determine whether they have complied with federal requirements applicable to its OTA authority. Now, this final report is also expected in fiscal year 2021. Wow. So, the OIG is intending for all 16 of these reports to be issued in 2021. They are clearly hard at work despite the status of the public health emergency and the chaos it has brought. Now, in my opinion, these reports with findings are always most interesting and informative to me, and I look forward to analyzing them in the new year ahead. It's also important for my listeners to keep an eye on these monthly OIG work plan updates to see how they may impact you, your provider, or your healthcare system. Remember, stay tuned for my monthly OIG work plan updates because they drop the second Wednesday of each month. And now it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. When hospice coverage is elected for a Medicare patient, the beneficiary waives all rights to Medicare Part B payments for services that are related to the treatment and management of their terminal illness during the period the hospice benefit election is in force. Hospital-related services performed by an attending physician who is employed or contracted by the hospice should be submitted to the hospice contractor. However, professional services of an attending physician who is not an employee of the designated hospice or does not receive compensation from the hospice for those services are submitted to Medicare Part B. Professional services of an attending physician are submitted with the GV modifier if all of the conditions below are met. I'll get into that in a bit. And then any services provided to a patient enrolled in a hospice that are not related 
to the treatment and management of the patient's terminal illness are submitted with the GW modifier. And I'll talk about that in a bit. For purposes of administering the hospice benefit provisions, an attending physician means, in this case, an individual who is a doctor of medicine or osteopathy, or is a nurse practitioner. Specifically, however, this nurse practitioner's services must have been furnished on or after December 8, 2003. Or this attending physician also means a physician assistant. And again, with the caveat of the services must have been furnished or rendered on or after January 1st, 2019. And also, this person must be identified by the patient at the time he or she elects their hospice coverage as having the most significant role in the determination and delivery of their medical care as their attending physician. So let's get into what these modifiers mean. GV and GW modifiers must be used when billing for services of a patient enrolled in hospice. The appropriate modifier use will depend on who is providing the service, what services are being provided, and if the services are related to the reason the patient is enrolled in hospice. Your GV modifier, your attending physician, cannot be employed or paid under arrangement by the patient's hospice provider. This modifier should be used by the attending physician when the services are related to the patient's terminal condition and not paid under arrangement of the patient's hospice provider. Also, this modifier must be submitted when a service meets the following conditions, regardless of the type of provider. The service was rendered to a patient enrolled in a hospice. The service was provided by a physician or non-physician practitioner identified as the patient's attending physician. Again, that could be your NP or that PA that I mentioned above at the time of that patient's enrollment in the hospice program. But do note, effective on or after January 5th of 2019, any services submitted without the GV modifier under the conditions outlined above will be denied. Now, here's an example of how to use GV modifier. So let's say the patient is enrolled in the hospice goes to their attending physician's office for closed treatment of a metatarsal fracture. You would use CPT code 28470. If the service is related to the patient's terminal condition and the attending physician is not employed or paid under arrangement by the patient's hospice provider, that attending physician should bill CPT code 28470 with modifier GV appended. Now, you don't want to use modifier GV in these instances. If the service was provided by a physician employed by the hospice, and if the service was provided by a physician not employed by the hospice and the physician was not identified by the patient as his or her attending physician. 
Let's move on to the modifier GW. GW is for services unrelated to the patient's terminal condition. This modifier should be used when a service is rendered to a patient enrolled in a hospice and the service is unrelated to the patient's medical condition, terminal medical condition. All providers must submit this modifier when the services provided are unrelated to the patient's terminal condition and claims submitted for treatment of a non-terminal condition to the Part A MAC with condition code 07. And do note, effective on or after January 5th of 2019, any services submitted without the GW modifier under the conditions I spoke of above will be denied. So let me give you an example of how to use GW. So if that patient is enrolled in hospice and goes to their physician's office for closed treatment of a metatarsal fracture with your CPT code 28470, and that procedure is unrelated to the terminal prognosis of the patient, the physician should bill it with modifier GW. And let's say the patient goes to the hospital. The patient is still enrolled in hospice, but they go to the hospital for closed treatment of metatarsal fracture, again with our CPT code 28470, and that procedure is unrelated to the terminal prognosis. The hospital reports condition code 07 along with CPT code 28470 with modifier GW appended. So, by understanding the fine details, the complexity of the who in this case, who is providing the hospice service, the medical documentation can help paint a clear, well-defined picture for a certified medical coder to abstract codes with accuracy. And finally, this week's inspiring quote in Spark is from Nelson Mandela. Education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world, right? I believe this to my very core. The more we educate ourselves, the more we stay in touch with current news here and worldwide, we can enter into the realm of change-making. I think we continue to shift and seek change in this space of healthcare. We are all keenly aware of the significant impacts COVID-19 has had on all our lives, and we continue to educate ourselves on its daily status, what hospitals are seeing patient volume increases, the latest tests and breakthroughs, and so much more. I know we're all continuing to change our ways of thinking, pivoting for the best. I am happy Nelson Mandela's spark still burns brightly in all of us today. So that wraps up today's episode. I'd love to hear your questions and comments. You can always direct message me on LinkedIn or voice message me on the Anchor app. And if you would like to inquire about my consultant services, you can always reach me through my email address at nexonpruitt.com. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. Please continue staying safe and healthy, practice safety for one and all during our collective life in the time of coronavirus. 
Thank you for listening in on today's episode, and I hope every week with me brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday. If you want more information from me, go ahead and follow me on LinkedIn or send me an email at sanalpatel at neximpruitt.com for all my consulting services in medical coding, auditing, and compliance. Thank you.